in wings hello and welcome to the third installment of our podcast my way i have with me bilal and a very special guest mr rohit gupta he is the president of rohit group of companies welcome rohit thank you harsha The first time I talked to Rohit, he came across as a person who is very pragmatic and objective. Every day we meet uh, a dozen or more people, right? But how many times do we ask, "How can I add value to you?" That was our conversation when we first talked. Uh, what was the thinking behind approaching to people that way? What do you think when talking to a new person? Yeah. So. Uh... So the reason that's a that's a key driver for me is um, when I used to be in classes, uh, there's a, there's a lot of problems that people used to talk about, or and I used to be often left c- confused as to what they wanted or what they were looking for in the conversation, uh, and I was always running from one class to the next class, or I was running from one item to the next item because my schedule was always uh, confusing and disorganized, which is a natural state for me. and i started getting to the point of just trying to say hey what do you want from me right but then at the same time i started noticing the same issue from their side when they interacted with me what was the purpose of my conversation with them why did i want to introduce they were always looking for something and and i thought about it over the years and it became something where relationships are built on the utility of each other it's not just uh, i like you but the likeness may come out of I make you laugh or you make me laugh or you're a shoulder to cry on or I'm a shoulder to cry on or maybe that I need information from you and uh and so it became important for me when somebody was helping me or I was finding a significant amount of value out of that relationship I wanted to reciprocate and create a balance uh in the relationship to make sure I was also adding value to them uh, so that the relationship could be sustainable over a long period of time and and if i couldn't create value for them i knew that uh it was going to be a short-lived relationship from their perspective so it always became a way for me to mine and understand their situation clearly how i can help them usually when people talk especially if it's business related or we are in a class because you know how students are we just we are there because we have to be there we reach the final year or when we are at the deadline and we we, we have to think about it really so that's commendable that you are someone who knew who as you said didn't know earlier but then you worked on it and now you know how to build relationships so that's really important and adding value is what everybody looks forward no, to but below the, the interesting thing about it is um there's been a lot of times i've been in conversations with people what i thought i was going to add value to them they don't really care about right and uh what they wanted what they were looking for was very different than what i was offering them in an initial stage in the conversation uh and uh and so it's it's not even just a business component but uh it's also in family right uh and so my wife and i will sometimes have conflict and we have to step back and say okay what are you expecting out of this relationship what is the value i need to add to you uh to make your life better and and if uh and and if i make your life better and you make my life better then there can be a relationship a long term between partners and so uh so i i think uh it's something that 
I found that people who are positive and accretive, they always find a way to create value for others. And, and people who tend to take or are greedy or selfish tend to only create value for themselves at the expense of others. Yeah, that's a, that's a mindset, I guess. It's, it's yeah. just a, having the right mindset. So when did this start? When did you start to approach relationships in this way? I, I don't know if it's, uh, there was a specific time I could say that uh, this, is, this is the date or this is the period. Um, it, early in my life, I dealt with depression and one of the issues, and, and it was it was actually, it wasn't as severe as I've seen with some people where they get catatonic, but it was pretty material that I was struggling to be functional in society. And uh, at that time, one of the things I found was that in order to be, to move, shift my mood, to get into a more positive frame of mind, I needed to laugh. And uh, But for me to laugh, I needed to make others laugh, right? And because if I don't make others laugh, they won't make me laugh. And, and so it's just this, 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 this iterative cycle. And, um, and so I, I, I would say a lot of my transformation took place in understanding where I am today was through that period of depression. But I'm not sure specifically the, the value component uh, was specific to any one thing. I just started asking one day. Uh, and I found it to be a reinforced cycle where it gave me a lot of positive benefit over time if that makes sense. So uh, your way of dealing with tough situations and hardships was basically to just laugh about them and just be humorous and yeah, stay so, positive. Yeah, so one of the exercises right? I developed when I was, uh, was depressed was I made it, uh, I read two pieces. One was in the Gita. Uh, Krishna said to Arjuna, the worst form of action is inaction, right? And, and then the second uh, component was I, I learned about winners. And one thing that winners do is they don't have uh, massive goals. Uh, even if they, so what they were talking about is an experiment where people will throw horse rings six meters away from the peg. And what they found with winners is they would go up to the peg, practice throwing it. And if they got it, they would take a step back, a meter step back, and then they'd throw it again. And if they missed it, they would take a step forward. And so they practice themselves how to winning it. People who tended to lose just went up to the six meter line and kept throwing from the six meter line, right? And so I took those two concepts and as I was talking to a psychiatrist, uh, he said, just pick an action and do it every day incrementally. So I took the action of trying to make one person laugh every day. And, and so I took that incremental approach and it just became a natural part of my day-to-day -day functionality that everything was a joke and every piece was a joke. and it, Eventually, people started labeling me as goofy or uh, as a guy or too serious sometimes in other situations. So it's, uh, it's just an incremental approach. I, I don't know if that can make sense. That does, right? So I went to a church one day and they were talking about transform transformation versus motivation. Yeah. When you wake up, you see a motivational video and you are motivated for that day. But when you have this transformation, you keep on changing every day and that keeps on adding and you achieve greater things, right? So it's always about transformation, which takes you to a greater height, not just motivation, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Motivation, I can tell you, wades, it ebbs and flows like the tides. Uh, if you have to make structural changes to your 
behaviors. And structural changes are extremely, extremely tough. You have to make just small, really incremental changes, and they eventually hopefully accumulate over time. I think we are getting a bit ahead of ourselves. We haven't talked much about your journey. So how has that been? Can you give us an overview about how it was growing up here in Canada and how it has been so far? Yeah, so so I have a little bit of an interesting background. My parents are from, uh, uh, my father's from Chambalghati and my, mom, my mother's from Jhasi. And uh, so two very distinctly different. Uh, she's from a wealthy family and he's from a very poor family. And uh, so, uh, so we lived in a, a juxtapose on a constant basis, I guess. Uh, so I was born in Edmonton, but uh, at the age of uh, three, uh, we moved to Libya. And, uh, and we lived in Libya for about eight years, seven and a half to eight years. And so I grew, essentially grew up in a communist country uh, in an expat village and growing up half in Canada, growing half on uh, India at the exact same time. So we would travel, oscillate back and forth. And then we moved back to Edmonton in 1990 uh, or 89 when the Oilers last won their cup. And literally we moved in March and then uh, in April they, or May they won the cup. Uh, and then uh, when we moved back to Edmonton, we didn't live in southeast Edmonton or north central Edmonton. We ended up moving to uh, Riverbend area and then we moved to the West End, uh, where the neighborhood had uh, very few immigrant families. It was all uh, Canadian-born families around us and, uh, uh, and on an acreage, which is further removed. Uh, so if you look at it from a Genesis perspective, I'm, I'm kind of like an immigrant, but I'm born in Canada. Uh, but uh, half in India. Uh, so when, when I went into university and, and caught into university, uh, a lot of my friends from Libya, we were all Indians uh, or, uh, from descendants of Indian families. And what was interesting was all of us got in trouble at school, all of us, uh, because we came out of the British school system uh, and, uh, and coming out of the British school system, essentially, uh, we struggled with academics uh, here in Canada uh, because culturally we were set back in the 80s and, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, but we were in the 90s in, in Canada and uh, so, so we, a lot of us had adaptation issues and we were getting into uh, all sorts of trouble with school but we were still doing all well in school and when I look forward today we're all from a corporate perspective we've all done well by ourselves spread out across the US and Canada and so forth but what it allowed me to do and as an experience that I was that when I was in university, I could hang out with all the Indian student associations, uh, all the people that would come from India because I had, I spoke Hindi fluently, read, wrote, did the whole thing. But then I also grew up in Canada so I could meet with all the Indo-Canadians that were born here, second generations, and interact with them. So I was one of those few cats that could move back and forth really fluently and understand the cultural separations, uh, which gave me a unique perspective of being able to take a lot of risk from your perspective maybe a lot of risk but from my perspective wasn't because i was arbitrage in a way because of language culture and understanding of different situations and i took that same uh, i took that approach into our, my business career uh, when i joined my family business and so i'm a silver spoon kid at the end of the day uh, what happened when i joined our industry it was uh, dominated by very similar individuals, people that are all come out of construction, out of the trades, or come out of the sales environment, uh, 
and uh, my father was an engineer that drank Shabazz Regal instead of a single malt scotch, uh, never had gone camping, never gone snowmobiling, mm-hmm. and all these guys would drink single malt scotches or they would drink beer and they went camping and so forth. So it was really tough for us to build relationships on common ground issues. Uh, but because I had this hybrid strategy or hybrid ability, uh, I was able to build a company uh, that was really diverse relative to our competitive set, full of engineers that were coming out of, the, uh, out of India, Pakistan, Dubai, or even Saudi Arabia area, or Middle East, I guess, uh, coming out of the Czech Republic, uh, made out of architects out of Russia or Georgia. And so, so we were able to, because I grew up on an international platform, I was able to create an international company, essentially, in a very hyper-local market that for some people who have never left Canada or for people who have never left the Prairie provinces and was a very uh, homogenous population base in our industry. I created a heterogeneous population base. And that journey, while extremely painful uh, at the onset, which ostracized us or made it difficult to interact with industry players, has eventually transformed us into a leading company and now we're starting to see other organizations and and when we look at exclusive diversity inclusionary platforms that people are talking about that journey is now starting to bleed into other companies and they're forced into adaptation whereas for us in a lot of situations it's just like okay great you're right and and it's a uh, sorry part of it is my father coming out of a very conservative location in chambulkati area actually has has very progressive views and and if you look at his history he always put my mother at the forefront uh, which is not a traditional uh, makeup in our in the indian culture which in fact has translated into that more than 50 percent of our staff in our office are female and they held leadership positions and so forth so uh, we had to actually get around cultural barriers with staff members that we would hire because they'd never grew up in an environment where their boss was a female. And it was completely unheard of. And so, but as we worked through those machinations, as we worked through those issues with these individuals, it's actually created a far more, uh, merit, it's created a meritocracy in our environment. Now, why I've transitioned from my personal life into here is because that's what's important, right? Like we're working on a meritocracy, add value to each other. So that's where it all starts coming out of. Yeah. It's all connected. Actually, uh, Rohit, I can uh, kind of uh, relate to your uh, Middle Eastern slash Indian slash Canadian experience because I was also born and brought up in Saudi Arabia. And then I did my undergrad in Oman. And then uh, I've never lived in India, but we used to go, you know, my parents are Indian, so we used to visit India all the time. It's like a bit of a mix. And then I'm here right now. I, uh, you know, graduated here, been here for the last two years. So when people ask me, where are you from? It's a bit... A tricky question. I think, okay, so I'm Indian, but I've never lived in India, and I've I was born in Saudi, yes. and I'm in Canada right now. So they're, they're like, what's the <laughs> fair answer? I was like, yeah. okay, I'm Indian. <laughs> so I can relate to that. But the good thing is, you used your uh, diversity and your experience and brought it to your professional career too. So that's I can relate to that because it's we are really adaptive because we've been moving all the time and we know Middle Eastern culture, we know Indian culture now. We know a bit of Canadian culture, so it's it's a good mix to have. So uh, I just wanted to see like the people always make mistakes, you know, in their life. So what do you what do you say to second chances? Do you think people 
can change and maybe they can get a second chance and do better yeah, for themselves? Yeah, look, uh, man, my, I have like a laundry list. I think my HR file is about yay thick, about a foot thick of stupid things I said <laughs> that I should, I should retract at some point in the future. And uh, the, as, uh, as the ladies at work say, sometimes I need earmuffs uh, to cover my, <laughs> or they need earmuffs to cover, right? <laughs> so you're uh, the right person. Yeah, so second chances are, uh, like, I'll be honest with you, like, in my early part of my university years, I, I, I took a lot of drugs that did a lot of stupid things, and uh, I caused myself a lot of problems that weren't necessary. And, uh, and if it was a single... Uh, single chance life, I wouldn't be where I am right now. And my parents needed to give me a, have a lot of patience with me uh, to get on the narrow, straight and narrow. And even today, I'm still not straight and narrow. I'm still an anarchist at heart. And uh, but uh, second chances uh, are a mixture of two things. One, people need to give you the opportunity to succeed, uh, but also as an individual, you need to give them a reason to give you a second chance. Right. And uh, so it's a chicken and egg situation. And I, I think people get too hung up on people aren't giving me a chance. Uh, my view on life is very much is if I'm in a room full of people and they don't want to give me a chance, OK, I'll go to the next room. Right. And if these guys won't give it to me, I'll get it somewhere else. And uh, uh, so that way I'm I'm a survivor. That being said, uh, it behooves us as individuals to actually give others opportunities and second chances. And because one of the things, if you look at the strategy of diversity, inclusion, equity, it's built around the concept of, as a sister concept of working with misfits, people who have weird backgrounds that have done all sorts of different things, but you're actually creating an opportunity for them to shine. Mm -hmm. Right. And, but you have to overlook a bunch of stuff that look like as misfit situations. Uh, so perfect example is uh, if you look at one side, I did drugs as a kid. The other way to look at it is uh, I did drugs. I took some risks. I've learned from them. Now, is there a way to step around those issues and make sure I don't cross some of those issues? Same thing. Or a perfect example is uh, I walked into, I've done it multiple times where I've been misappropriately dressed, either underdressed or overdressed into situations because I did read the briefing notes <laughs> into the situation. And uh, I walk into the room and uh, so one way to look at it is this person doesn't care or it isn't uh, prepared or isn't whatever. The other way to look at it is, okay, he's willing to take a risk. He's learned his lesson. Now, can I, can I prove myself back into the coffers of the people who are at the table who are judging me so so it's hmm. it's never a single-sided approach it's it's a it's a dual approach your attitude has to be appropriate to be able to be given a second chance is the way i look at it that's right you briefly touched on it but i want to get a bit deeper on it how important is support structure when things are not going good um, you said that your family was very patient in personal as well as in professional life. How important is the support structure? So um, I often hear from people that are a byproduct of their own success, but we're, we're not islands. We're constantly interacting. We're molecules colliding with other molecules on a basis that set our path. And uh, there's a chance I can succeed completely on my own. Uh, but 
rarely do you succeed entirely on your own. And so uh, if you're talking about it from a game of probability perspective, uh, your environment is a huge determinant of your success. So the fact that I went through all my challenges and my father and my mother were willing to give me an opportunity in their company is largely a reason I am where I am, right? And, and if they hadn't given me the opportunity, I wouldn't be where I am. I'd most likely be doing something different. Could it be bad? Yes. Could it be just as good? Yes. Could it probably much better? I don't know. Uh, that would have meant I would have been going without the support system into the future. And I doubt it. So I would say your environment is very important and the people you surround yourself with are very important. And so if there's one thing that I constantly work on, it's the environment that is around me. Either I'm constantly upgrading it or it's upgrading me. And so I, I try to make sure I add or have people around me that add value to me constantly and that I'm adding value to. And so it comes back to that value creation, a creative component for me. So I would say once a month, I, I step back at least and I relook at my environment of people that are around me, the, the business environment I'm in, my personal environment, and I'm evaluating, is it a good environment to be in. And if it isn't, I'm trying to work on it to make it a positive environment. I think I completely agree with you. Uh, there is a saying that you are the average of five people you are surrounded by, right? So yeah. that actually ties in beautifully to what you said. And even the fact that everybody needs to start and a push just to get their uh, wheels rolling. So, But, but if you think about it, Bilal, uh, one of the things I just said was I'm still evaluating. So even after the flywheel has started going on my, my life, I still need to keep making sure that the flywheel keeps accelerating, right? Uh, otherwise, the flywheel can stop very quickly. Cool. So if you look at a situation like COVID, um, and it's unfortunate, but I've had a couple of friends who have dealt with suicide in, in the last few months in their, within their uh, immediate family or just largely uh, in their extended family situations. And... Uh, those are not situations that were decelerating. Uh, they were situations where were healthy families, and then all of a sudden, COVID hit. Something fundamentally changed in their life, and everything hit a wall. And and uh, they didn't happen to have the support mm -hmm. structures they thought they did in, around them to stop or prevent the situation. So even for an individual that yeah. everything seemingly is going well, you can hit a wall very fast. And so when you look at people that are on the street today in our cities, uh, most people don't slowly hit that wall. They may, it may be just a massive push that comes really quickly. They could be people who are doing their PhD. So I'll give you a perfect example. I have a cousin who's a rocket scientist, literally a rocket scientist, mm -hmm. but dealt with bipolar disorder, deals with it on a regular basis. And we don't know at any given moment he could be on a street but he could also be a senior executive corporation. And so even the most successful people mm. have a dark side to them that can stop. So I would say your environment isn't just a start on the initial stages. It's a constant effort that we have to put on it as we age. I'm going to put up a engineering terminology. I believe that humans can be a closed loop system, right? So there, there is always feedback coming in you just have to be open to that feedback. And when you get that feedback, you can improve yourself. 100%. That's a great one. 
I'm going to use that one. <laughs> hopefully, the the non-engineers understand. Hopefully. <laughs> Rohit, you're the president right now. So you had a journey to the role of a president. So you must have started off at the lowest step and you climbed the ladder to being a president. So being a leader, what's your take on leadership? Yeah, uh, I'm a little pig-headed. So so there there are problems with me as an individual. I would say we all have uh, defaults that we can. So this leopard cannot shake its spots. Uh, And uh, so... uh, Mine has been an ignorance is bliss, ultra aggressive personality type where I, I look at the situation and I, I, I run largely, try to be clinical about it as much as I can be and try to look at the probabilities of success in decisions or uh, situations that exist around me. Uh, but but what, what I would say how my leadership style has developed is I, I have, uh, again, trying to create value for everybody around me. That's my approach. And uh, there are certain situations where other people have been far more successful in the leadership of that situation or and their style is far more suited than mine is. Uh, because it's not about being pragmatic, it's not about being logical, but it's about being irrational, uh, whether it's in a negotiation or irrationally sensitive to a situation that I don't logically understand why we're being sensitive in that situation or it's about a situation where you have to be logical and not sensitive to the situation to make sure you can move forward. So uh, I would say everybody has different leadership styles and uh, identifying who's the most appropriate leadership style at that moment is beneficial. And certain leadership styles are, are uh, successful in the situation, uh, like an economic situation. So in an inflationary style, uh, a certain leadership style is appropriate in a deflationary situation. A different t- style of leadership may be ne- necessary. And, and so if you think about it, uh, think about it in wartime and peacetime. In a wartime, you want a, a leader that's just going out there and can charge the troops up and doesn't take prisoners necessarily and just makes, ensures victory of their people. But in a peacetime, it's more important to lift everybody uh, than it is to lift a singular group. And, and so different, the leadership styles have, are fads, I, I, is the way I like to believe it. And they have a certain shelf life for certain situations. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lots of situations where there are much better leaders overall around me. And uh, it's been useful and, and actually uh, really important for me to tap into their leadership advice and help me navigate certain situations. And specifically, I have one of my uh, juniors, our partners in our business, that uh, is is the wisest amongst us. And uh, he saw me dancing yesterday in a meeting because I was I had an itchy sweater on the situation. And uh, and I and he called me out after the meeting. He goes, "You had an itchy sweater on. What was the problem?" I said, "I didn't like what they said." He goes, why don't you just tell him, be a John Wayne and just tell him, partner, this ain't going to happen. <laughs> and, and so that's literally uh, what I did. And uh, it's been successful in that discussion. So it's it's a me- mixture of just talking to people and, and trying to steer. Most of our listeners are between the age of 20 and 35, right? Who are trying to define what success is for themselves. How would a person, how or how should a person approach this question? Like, defining 
10 years down the line i should be successful or something like that how how should we uh, approach that question so i i struggle with that a lot of people ask me uh, often uh, where do you want to be in 10 years what do you want the corporation to be i'm like i don't know uh, uh, and they're like what do you mean i said look uh, i value doing creative stuff a lot and so as long as the corporation keeps doing creative stuff and keeps on doing valuable stuff i'm happy that's the direction i want the corporation to grow money will follow us right uh if we're not creating value nobody will pay us for what we do mm-hmm. that's kind of so it's uh, so that's kind of how i approach it so uh i come back to the incremental state uh comments i made about how to move transformational change and benjamin franklin said it best and so what he used to do he used to write out the 10 items that he valued the most. As he used to write down 10 words, behind each word, he would write out a phrase, a paragraph, and he would uh, force rank those values. And then every month, he would practice one of the values specifically and, and try to enforce it. And he would align his actions to that value as much as possible. And if he was at a decision point where his decision would contradict the values. He'd revert back to those value chain, a value list, a force ranking and say, well, I valued this uh, item number one, this item number two, so I'll do number one. And then if I have time for number two, I will do it. Hmm. Where that comes into play is you often hear people, I value my health, I value money, and I value my family time. Well, frankly, they're contradictory, potentially. Uh, So if I gave you the choice, you have two hours left. You can spend one hour in the gym, one hour at work, or uh, or two hours at work and two hours with your family. Which choice do you make? Which is more important to you? You can't do all three. You can only do one of the three, uh, or a compromise of one of the three. Uh, so what comes up is some people value their fitness above money, which they value above their family. Well, so go to the gym first, then go to your work, and and if you have time left over, go to the family, mm. right? And so that force ranking is missing, and what happens is over time that changes. As you age or situations around you change, your values modify systematically. So uh, for me, uh, as long as you practice what you value, right, you will automatically start aligning your success to that. Now, you still need to have goals. Uh, but now your goals don't have to be 10 years into the future. There, there might be one goal in 10 years, another two goals at five years, and then there's a litany of goals at one year, and then a bunch of uh, even, a, even a more amount at 30 days out, at 60 days out, and 90 days out. So I try to live my life to a maximum of two years out in goals and make sure my goals are aligned to my values. And as long as that is done, uh, I, I find that it works out. So since my son has been born, I found my value shift, whereas my family was down the list, my career and stuff I was creating for society was higher up in the list. Uh, I'm finding my son has moved to the top uh, and my family's moved to the top and a lot of things have moved to the, uh, to the midstream, if that makes sense. Yeah. So success for me is happiness, which comes from actually what you value. So it's like a balance between work and personal life plus 
taking everything step by step and uh, working on your present to make sure if you work on your I I read somewhere that if you work on your present your future will improve too because you're working on now making it better so that carries on to your future so that's kind of like what you I think yeah, I have a different way of looking at it I look at it like negotiating with your future there is a let's imagine that there is a 10 year older harsha out there and i have to talk with him about what his happiness looks like and what my happiness looks like in the present and it's the creating the balance between them two i guess uh no i i'm a little bit more like towards bilal uh mm-hmm. uh in this situation right like so uh, how many times have you heard uh people say that i want to be a billionaire or a millionaire but you see them at the bar all the time right you're well you're not going to be a millionaire at the bar unless you're you're marrying somebody rich okay uh that's the only other way you're going to do it there you have to at some point put the effort in and so their value set is completely different than their goal set right and and so the, what they value is being rich what their act sorry their value set is different than their action set what they value is being rich their actions are showing that they're moving away from their goals right and so you really have to sit them down and say okay but if you have a choice between being a millionaire or being a drinking with your friends which do you value more while well, i drink with my friends then okay put then you will make decisions to not be rich make rich lower down the set so don't worry about it if you're not rich yeah. right mm-hmm. and, and so it's that reconciliation with your own brain right. what do you really what really matters more into the future mm-hmm. right and so you're really holding yourself accountable so whatever your lot in life is in the future you have accepted it already you've reconciled it every step of the way it's not a rude awakening for yourself that mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense there is this uh, psychologist who says that our goals are based on life lies so there might be a goal that says i want to retire at the age of 35 that might be someone's goal right but then those are not based on factual decisions so what happens is after 35 suppose you do retire at 35 what do you do with the rest of your life you will not be happy just sipping a margarita on a beach or something you will still want a life that creates value in that way that goal is not justified i think that goals are necessary that without goals there is anarchy and chaos in life but at the same time we should again be open to feedback saying that we have this goal but we are not act- acting in a way that we can achieve goal or something like that i think we should be adaptive because just imagine someone who was planning to marry in 2020 he was like okay in june i'll be married and everything will be great this and then covid hits and they're like so now what now their whole plan is in jeopardy and they'll be you know it's so it's i i feel it's like it's more better to be adaptive and adaptive to the situation okay covid happened okay fine now what can i do best in this situation so i think that's my approach and uh, yeah. yeah i mean that's well, that's how i am <laughs> off you what you're saying below it's just control what you can control and what you can't control don't worry about it uh speaking of which um when you're you you're in a leadership position so there there'll be a lot of times that you'll be hiring people for your organization so usually what do you see into seen people that you're hiring 
do you go more for the skills or do you more go for the mi mindset or what's your yeah so it's it's a mixture of both right like peter drucker said it best you, know, you hire for intelligence intensity and integrity but if they don't have the last one you hope they don't have the other two <laughs> right <laughs> so uh so so uh that's a good one so so you want all three ideally within the candidate a lot of people always are so there's two different types i've seen a lot of managers that go for purely technical interviews and ignore the cultural fit or the integrity of the individual and how they will interact and then there's a second group that just goes for pure cultural fit and likability and they tend to ignore the competency of the individuals yeah. I, I don't think you can do either you can't do either right uh, if there's no if the technical fit isn't there uh, the person will inherently fail or will cause mediocrity within the organization yeah. but there's lots of really good technical people i've run into that are horrible cultural fits or or don't have the integrity of what they're saying and and they become rogue agents within the company so it's a matter of actually getting to the technical discussion now how do you create a technical discussion if i ask you stuff that you've studied um, and, and this is exactly the problem i had used to have in university where people would be like what's on the exam yeah. right so they'd ask the prof what's going to be on the exam <laughs> who cares who cares uh you either know the subject matter or you don't right if you don't know the subject matter you deserve to fail and if you know the subject matter you'll pass the exam because the exam is going to be on something within what you've studied within the course and if the professor asks you something outside of the course who cares again because he asked you an unfair question about the situation and so my the questions i try to create for everybody in our interview process and i uh, is to understand the theory of whatever they know understand it well and so for example bilal happens to be a dairy farmer i will ask questions about the dairy farming business and i will ask him specifically explain to me the process around dairy farming how does it work i have no idea about the business i'll just ask for them and then i will start throwing situations at them that I have no understanding of the situation. I don't know the answer, but I will listen to their answer to understand if it makes rational sense to me on how they solve the problem, right? If they cannot give me a rational answer that I can understand, they will never figure out my own business, mm. right? Uh, second issue That's is, right. uh, yeah. then I will ask them technical questions I know the answer to, right? But they don't know the answer to. And, and I will ask them to see how they can adapt in that situation to the, can they apply what they've technically learned and rationalize themselves into an answer? So I'm unfair to myself in the interview, but I'm also just as equally unfair to the participant mm -hmm. from a technical perspective, right? So it's, it's really That's trying to figure out the problem set. Then the, the second component of it is, if I generally find people who can bounce back and forth between situations like that, they can actually be a cultural fit for us as an organization because we are all forced to deal with situations that we don't have an understanding of on a daily basis, right? And uh, as long as we're solving problems, we're a member of the team. Mm. The second aspect that I start fishing around is I... I will purposefully, in the interview process, try to give them the opportunity to lie to me. And 
I will on situations that I may know the answer to and see if they take that opportunity to lie. If they're willing to lie to me, that then it's not a situation that's going to work long term, right? Perfect example was there was an individual that hit it out of the home, out of the park with all our gating processes. As he came up to the ladder, uh, the leadership team threw him through the individual over to me and said, hey, this guy's a good team, a good person. We should hire him on the staff, could be a potential. And as I started asking the person questions, I happened to know four or five people within the network that he was talking about. And as he was talking, I laid out some misinformation. I, I laid out some information, allowed him to give me misinformation. And he started saying, I did this, I did this, I did this. And I knew the participants in that specific decisions, right? And as that occurred, I, I went back to the leadership team and I said, something doesn't smell right. Let's do a criminal check on the individual. And all sorts of fraud situations started popping out of that situation. But he knew really well how to navigate the interview set. He knew the technical set of it. But there's the back end side of it. So, so I don't think as interviewers, we can be single-minded and come with a frame, a set frame of discussions. Otherwise, people can navigate through it. But as interviewees, if we're looking for a structured format, I would be concerned uh, about the company that I'm joining or the team I'm joining because I don't know if they're structured appropriately. Like, are they, are they going to use me the best way possible or are they going to put me in a box? So it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, I think a, a fixed set of questions by the interviewer shows that the organization is a bit narrow-minded and they just go in a set framework and they just follow it like a horse, you know, with blinders. But if they ask like questions that are innovative, it means that they are more open-minded and they're that shows like the corporate culture of uh, creativity and they uh, like it, they always say that creativity or whatever the values are uh, an organization shows come from the top management. So if the top management itself is being very narrow-minded, it just means that the whole organization is uh, like that too. Yeah, you can't ferret out diamonds in the rough by being structured, absolutely structured, right? You have to yeah. keep asking. So there, uh, the questions seem irrational, imbalanced, uh, but it's really to try to deep dive deeper into the individual and extract as much as you can about the, uh, the discussion, right. if that makes sense. So how's your experience been on the interview side? Like, have you guys found uh, people are trying to dive in or do you find them to be superfluous in their dialogue about you, with you? Well, with me, there have been technical interviews. Some people, uh, like, it depends on the individual. Like, if it's a technical person who is interviewing you, they'll be more technical. But HR people, they, they, uh, they are mostly situational. They'll give you situations and they assess the situation, like how we reacted to them. And uh, But I, what I've noticed is people like it when you're also involved and there's a conversation rather than a question-answer one-way street. So uh, I've noticed that I, like if I have something to ask them that, that adds value and that just shows that I'm also, also involved and people really like that. So I always prepare beforehand, like, who is going to interview me? What's their background? And do I have anything important to ask them related to that? So uh, that, that, that's what I feel like. People like it if it's a two-way conversation and not like just bombarding one person with questions. I don't know about Harsha, but Harsha, could you also I think I have some similar experiences? experiences, but um, I have also had experiences where I asked the interviewer, what do you expect me to achieve 
in the next year in the first year or something and i didn't get a straight answer during that time i thought that they didn't have a vision for that role maybe so i have had those situations as well but other than that i have had situations where they are very clear as to what they expect you to do and stuff like that right so i'm i'm a kind of a person where if the that vision of one year is there then i will thrive in that environment i guess yeah but but let me ask you uh, differently what's your goal in a year right what's your vision for yourself in a year and are you absolute in nature about that right what specifically to your career so at the end of the day everyone has to have a goal right at, at least in the short term tomorrow if i'm going to work what do i have to achieve in the next month or next two months what is if i am working on process improvement i need to say that i have improved the process process by 10% or something like that that tangible outcome is very important for me i guess yeah but so so here's the challenge i have with interviewees right they ask me what do you want me to achieve in a year or what's your goal for me i'm like i don't know what are you going to perform how good are you at the job i haven't mm-hmm. seen you at the job uh so if i tell you i want a 20% process improvement or something that's my goal but that you may not have the capacity mm-hmm. to improve it what's what's more pragmatic yeah. from a discussion point is let's mm-hmm. talk about the here and now so the question should be uh around what product lines are making money what product lines aren't making money what's your problems that you're having have you looked at this like what i find where interviews have done really well with me interviewees is they actually start diving into a problem set that i'm dealing with today and they start navigating that situation uh and so the, the guys who are do, able to do that really well yeah. they win guys who tend to ask me what's the culture like here i'm like i don't know you have to go talk to everybody do an assessment i can tell you what i want but <laughs> there'll be a disconnect what in what with what i see and what is actually the culture because it's uh, you will have a different perception based on your attitude right i agree with that uh, and so it's yeah, the pro- i agree with that right yeah. so it ties back to what bilal says the interview should again be a conversation so i say you might say that 10% increment is what you need in the next year so i would ask then where do you expect the 10% increment to come from these are my skills this is how i can improve your process to achieve those 10% so that conversation need to happen in an interview i guess i think the best thing to do is understand the uh, expectations on both sides because that's uh, because if there's uh, miscommunication between expectations usually what my experience is is it's always about miscommunication about misunderstandings with expectations because you expect to okay i have to do this but when the other person may have other expectations and the problem is they don't communicate and they don't tell each other okay man i i expect you to do this <laughs> but but the other person will be like okay maybe i'm supposed to do this so it's always uh, about uh, expectations you know like managing expectations it's an art it's an art like both sides the interviewee and the interviewer and, and so that's where uh, i think the better way to look at it is as an interviewee uh when people are grilling you whether it's in the in a formal interview or outside of a formal interview can you also stick in certain questions or nuggets along the way to extract information to facilitate a discussion as you said below right and so i so i think a lot of people view the interview as a separate function uh than a uh their day-to-day life 
Uh, and I think you have to actually integrate the two components together and make it just a way of life. Uh, so even for in preparation for this podcast, one of the comments I would have made earlier to you guys is I would have liked to take some notes, think about it. What questions can I ask you? And I've been, as we've been going through this conversation, I've been trying to figure out how do I get into a conversation instead of just a pure interview between the two of us or three of us, sorry. Well, this has been a really great conversation. So I, I have a lot that I can take away from this conversation, but all good things have to come to an end and it's time to end our podcast, I guess. Thank you so much, Rohit, for giving us your time. Harsha, Bilal, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to share my ideas and my experience. And uh, hopefully uh, we get to do this again uh, in a different form, maybe around some scotch. And we'll be productive. Then. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. To know more about our guests, please follow him on his social media. The handles are in the description. For more inspirational stories, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.